Good morning, Petaluma. You are listening to KPCALP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, streaming live at kpca.fm. This is Talking with Rabbi Ted. This is Rabbi Ted Feldman, B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma, gathering again on a Thursday morning to meet some of the to meet some of the community leaders around town and find out their passions, what they're learning, what they're teaching, where they come from, and what makes them who they are today. So here we are, and our first guest today is Reverend Patrick Torbett from Elin Lutheran Church here in Petaluma. Welcome to Talking with Rabbi Ted. Good morning, and uh, thank you for having me on your show. Congrats on the show, and um, pleasure to be here with you. Great. It's great to have you here. So, as I do every time I have a guest here, I want to get to know you and want our community to get to know who you are. So, can you tell us a little bit, uh, you've been here how long now? We'll be coming up on two years in Petaluma. Two years, and where'd you come from? Yep. And so, what's a little bit of your background? Yeah, so um, originally from suburbs of Baltimore, Maryland, and um, found our way out on to the West Coast via the Midwest. Uh, some spent a couple of years uh, with a nonprofit in the Twin Cities, and, um, and uh, also went to seminary in the Twin Cities as well. Um, we spent. Four years on a first call in uh, Tatertown, USA. Tatertown, USA, which is uh, northeastern North Dakota. For four mm. years, a small town, uh, uh, farming community. Um, after four years there, we uh, have now found our way out to uh, to the egg capital. So from taters to eggs. That's that's, 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 that's a good done. mixture. It's a yeah. good breakfast. Yeah, it's it a good certainly breakfast. is. Yeah. So, um, what was it like being in a small town like that in, in a community I would call isolated and in a different part of the world? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it, a different world from the world that I grew up in. Um, and But very interesting to see an, an agricultural community, a tight-knit community in many ways. Um, you know, what they say about uh, a town like that is you don't need to use your uh, blinkers as you're driving because everybody knows where you're going. So with it comes the uh, blessing of community, um, the blessing of knowing others and being known by others, which is a true blessing, um, and a real kind of care for one another. So, um, yes, it may have been 60 miles to the nearest target, but it was... Um, uh, a blessing to be there and good people. Great. So, it must uh, how was what was that community's connection like with national politics? You know, here we're very conscious, at least in the realm of Petaluma where I operate, we're very conscious of what's happening in our country and in our world. And what's it like in a rural community? Is that same thing there? And how does it affect the life of the community? Yeah, well, I think um, <coughs> a lot of um, people in at least the town that I was in had connections to some of the larger um, cities in North Dakota, larger towns in North Dakota, and so 
um, and connections to the universities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were close to the University of North Dakota. We were close to um, North Dakota State University. And so there's connections to those uh, universities and those towns. And um, so, you know, you might, you might think it's isolated, but a lot of these people have been to these schools, uh, have traveled, and have seen the world. And so there's a consciousness there, I think, of um, politics and, um, you know, those kind of things. So, yeah. All right. Well, would, would you see any difference between the nature of faith in a small community like that and what you're experiencing in your community here at Ilamuta? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think uh, one of the things that has been said is that, um, at least within the Midwest, Lutheranism, um, you know, tends to be kind of part of a culture there. And so, for example, uh, sports and activities are, are to cease on Wednesdays at about 4 o'clock um, for religious programming on Wednesday nights. Um, and so it's... it's um, Though this is, you know, perhaps changing too in the Midwest, I think um, there is still this, um, you know, it's still kind of part of part of culture, and and so it's still it, there's still space for it. Um, perhaps maybe less so out here. I've not heard of schools that are are uh, <laughs> saying activities need to cease by four in order to get to religious programming out here. So I'd say that. Maybe um, you know Lutheranism tends to be a little bit more uh, of a of a culture where here um, we're living in you know um, more of a much more secular um, and um, and, div- and diverse and and, and diverse right, um, right. area of the country. Um, so not necessarily to say good or bad, just a, a different experience and um, with its own unique opportunities and challenges. And so, so what is that faith for you, uh, and how did that? Uh, how did you get that influence in your life, and where is that faith now? Yeah, well, um, my my dad's family. My dad dad grew up Catholic, and I think he grew up wanting to be a you know a priest, maybe like everyone else. And um, so he that was his background, his family. My mom's side is Baptist, um, uh, good good Baptists back in Maryland, and. Um, they got married, you know, the Baptists and the Catholics. So and Lutheranism was the compromise. And so Lutheranism was was the middle ground. Uh, it was it was where where can we find a place? Um, they went to the local church, local church, and not you know. And I think that's you know half the battle is having a inviting group of people, a friendly group of people, and that you know are inviting to the outsiders. And this is what. The Lutheran Church just happened to be, you know, where where my parents were looking, and they got involved. Um, they were um, working with youth and music and things that they liked to do uh, within the church, and so um, so that uh, so they passed on that to me, um, and uh, passed on that that faith, and it's been a faith that. Um, you know, is um, ever changing for me, and and, and ever you know um, processing and, and discerning uh, what it means for me. I, I'd say at this point in in my life, um, you know, there's this there's this uh, this 
concept within within scripture for me is this idea that, that God's spirit is one that which leads us to love and peace and patience and kindness um, these good things and, and that's kind of how I see um, the, the God um, in in the world is that which moves us to these things uh, justice and, and, and peace in our world and so that's kind of where I'm at with that um, yeah, so you and I had this initial discussion uh, preparing for today's talk um, about the notion of truth. And that's mm. always mm. a big thing. Yep. Yep. I remember once I was giving a speech about uh, Judaism at a, in a university setting, and a young man sitting in the front row with the Bible in his lap at one point raised his hand and said, so, Rabbi, when are you going to start telling the truth? Right. <laughs> yeah, so, so uh, then I got into the whole discussion, well, whose truth would you like me to be talking about? I'm just talking about my truth. What right. do you, what, how do you, right. What's your take on that? Well, um, I think, uh, you know, we had you, uh, we invited you over to Elam. I think it was last summer we had questions. And I think one of the questions was, is... Um, you know uh, who's you know who's right or whose God is really God or right, something right. along those lines. Right, right. And it's funny, you know, people there uh, tend to remember the sermons of other people uh, much better than they remember my sermons. Oh, good. Well, I think uh, I think I have the same thing. Maybe we should just okay. Well, there you go. So, um, so people tend to talk. You know, re- remember your sermon. I think ah. that you gave there, and if you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, or or if I misheard, you know, my community, but they, I think they said something to the effect that, that you had perhaps said, you know, there's, um, you, you know, we are all on different paths to the divine, right. um, that we find these different roads, these different paths, and I think that's an image of, you know, the mountain heading up the mountain, and it's these different paths that, you know, uh, you, you take to head up to the divine, to God, and that you find, um, and I've lived in, I've gotten to see, you know, exclusivism in its best forms, and I've gotten to see, you know, um, universalism in its forms. And um, for me, you know, I think um, I'm reminded of, you know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's author Barbara Brown Taylor, who's a Christian thinker, but she says, she talks about the preacher who speaks of God as if, as if they've been up to the throne and taken pictures. Um, and uh, I think that's a nice, it's, it's an image that has stuck with me, that, um, that I approach, it, approach the divine and God um, with um, less certainty, I think. Or um, maybe there are, are, are convictions or truths that I, I tend to believe, um, things that I believe that are true. Um, but there's also this openness, um, I th- or I think, um, I think, I think my faith, um, the faith that I've come to know, and I think the, the faith of Jesus, actually, uh, the teachings of Jesus, would have us um, to be open to truth as others experience it and their path that leads them to God. I think um, I think we get in trouble, and I think Jesus actually. Um, confronted those who thought that they had God under wraps um, and thought, you know, those who thought that they had completely figured it out and um, that uh, they were the sole 
you know, um, holders of, of the divine or of God's love. When I was in a small town in the south, I took a group from the synagogue to a Baptist church, and the, the preacher welcomed us there, and I may have told you this story, the preacher welcomed us there, and these are ninth graders, and he said, but he wanted to give, uh, express his condolences and sadness that all of us were going to be burning in the fires of hell. Uh, and that he really felt badly about that, but he hoped that his, our stay in the church that day would be comfortable and embracing. Wow. So uh, I was about to say I would save him a seat near the fire, but <laughs> I, didn't feel like, I didn't feel like standing up in church that day and uh, proclaiming wow. that. So that hmm. whole struggle That's around that issue of yeah. truth. I, I love this statement on your website uh, from hmm. Elam Lutheran Church. Hmm. Uh, we are saints and sinners. Mm -hmm. The first thing we know about the people in our faith community is that none of us has all the answers or all the faith. Not the pastors, not the folks who have been here for 50 years, and not the folks with new ideas. We trust that the Holy Spirit calls us together, etc. So mm -hmm. that's a really a beautiful statement about this notion of truth and that all human beings are struggling to find meaning in life and that there's that sense of something greater than ourselves in all human beings, uh, whether they're secular, whether they're religious, whatever terms you want to throw around to right. use there. Right. So I, I think it's good. How did that? Did, was that on your website before you got there? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, uh -huh. so I, I can't take credit for that. Right. Um, but it's uh, reflective of, um, in, in my view, uh, a good Lutheran theology, um, which is grace-based uh -huh. and um, relies. There, you know, we talk about within at least at least the Lutheran Church a, a boldness in um, belief in the grace of God. Mm. Um, and uh, so, and yet at the same time, it, it recognizes that we are um, finite. We are, um, we come with our quirks and we come with our um, mistakes and our, you know, uh, shortcomings and, and all those kinds of things. And um, so relying on this grace of God that sees us through all that we don't know and all of our doubt and our, the things that we, you know, all of the things that we are, um, you know, just our humanness. Our humanness. So one of the other things, in addition to my sermon from last summer when I came to the church, <laughs> and of course, I was able to tell everybody in the beginning, well, anything the pastor said, I'm here to tell you the truth. So, but we we shared also an interfaith service uh, right. back in uh, November, yeah. and yeah, want to talk about that a little bit and let people know what it was like and the experience for you personally or for the community you serve. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this, Rabbi, and um, you know. There have been many positive experiences that I, you know, being here in Petaluma and and, and, and at Elam, um, and that that's up there among the best um, that I've experienced so far. Um, and I think that's that's where that's what we need to be doing. I think that's what the, where the church needs to be. I think that's where religious communities need to be is in partnership with one another and um, in 
um, in recognizing the the holiness in the other, in recognizing the the goodness in the other, the richness of our traditions. Um, but um, um, so it was. It, 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 that has been um, the interfaith uh, type thing. You know, um, I think experiences um, that that I've had have all been really rich, um, and uh, and that was definitely one of one of one of the highlights for me um, was sharing that service with you and other communities of faith in Petaluma. Yes, I think we had the Islamic Center was with us. Uh, the United Church of Christ was there. Yeah. And was First Pres? I don't think First Pres made it uh, for that one. St. John's St. Episcopal. John's Episcopal, yeah. right. Yeah. So it was yep. a wonderful, yeah. wonderful experience. I know for the members of my community who were there, they felt really uh, um, heartened that there could be connection like that here in our Petaluma community. Uh, I remember a number of years ago, uh, apparently there was uh, some kind of interfaith service on the east side of Petaluma, and a uh, unnamed pastor for the moment uh, was remarked to me, yeah, it was interfaith. Uh, they had Catholics there, <laughs> uh, but uh, neither the Islamic community nor the Jewish community was represented. Okay. So this really felt like a beautiful yeah. connection among all of us in this among all of us. Okay. How are people uh, responding to the tension that we live in in our society today in your community? Does uh, it come up as part of the programmatically or conversation-wise? Or do people come to church and then isolate themselves into those moments there for respite, perhaps from the world mm-hmm. outside? What's mm-hmm. been your experience like with that? Yeah, well, uh, Elam was started by uh, Danish immigrants in the 1920s. And um, so uh, as I was looking back at some of the history or as I've I've come to know the history there, I think it's, you know, there there was a group of Danish settlers in the 20s that they decided to pay, I think, $40 a month for for the mission pastor. Um, and to to come into Petaluma, and then eventually they bought St. Vincent's Church and moved it from St. Vincent's down the road to where Elam sits, and um, and placed it there. And I think they had a you know 130 people there for a Christmas party as they you know dropped the <laughs> building into place. But Elam um, is right in in uh, the Exodus uh, story or in the wilderness story is this place of the palms and place of water wells this this uh, you know a stop um, a place of oasis and so I think you know that's an image that perhaps stays with you know the, the people or as I've thought about faith in, in some respects it is this um, oasis or it is this refuge or um, you know, uh, this place of, you know, gathering of community and of, you know, of hopefulness. Um, and so I, I think of that, but, you know, it's, it, we also, it's, it, you can't quite escape the realities of the world too, or you don't want to escape the realities of the world either. And so we've, you know, had, um, discussions as to, um, you know, especially around election time, a couple, you know, a couple years ago too, that we went through some of the um, 
you know, hot, you know, issues related to uh, that people were wanting to talk about. And so we had a forum that discussed some of those issues. And, um, and it, you know, it, it, um, surprisingly, I mean, you know, Petaluma is, you know, eclectic and, you know, diverse. And so there's, you know, multiple, there's all opinions. kinds of, all different kinds of uh, right. worldviews and different opinions. And right. I think that's part of the, um, uh, part of the church is, uh, at least as I've experienced it, is, is um, living into a spirit of, of love as we, as we discuss you know, different worldviews and as we seek to figure out what is, what is truth and, um, and how we can maybe learn from each other's perspectives to trusting in this, you know, this grace or this, this love of God that goes beyond, you know, one political party or one worldview. Um, and so uh, it comes with its challenges, it right? It does come with its challenges. <laughs> So another another piece that's uh, challenging for I believe uh, the faith communities is the engagement of younger families uh, into the institutionalized religious systems that we've created in our world. Uh, what's right. what's that experience like for you, for your church, for your community, and what are you trying to do to uh, ameliorate it, or to change it, or to reach out? Yeah, you know, um, right. You know, I I guess I can just kind of speak from you know some of my experiences, which have been to try to provide experiences or opportunities for um, you know children, youth to grow to learn. To experience things that they wouldn't otherwise experience. Uh, I think I mentioned we I once taking a group of high schoolers on a trip down, and we went to a, um, we went to a synagogue. Mm-hmm. We um, spent some time at um, uh, Shabbat um, morning service, mm-hmm. uh, and then we um, also spent time um, serving with Habitat. Um, doing home repair. And then we also um, just happened to catch a, a night of, of Ramadan um, at a local mosque in which they were breaking uh, their fast. Uh, it, was, it was sundown, and, and so they had invited the community to, to learn a little bit more about Ramadan with them and break the fast with them. So there we are sitting in a basement, uh, 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 you know, with... Uh, people that we had not met and people that were new to us and foods we had never t- tea that we had never tasted it was the best tea I, I think I've ever had um, and and it was about 10 high schoolers you know that were experiencing this and I just remember um, you know these these um, high schoolers experiencing something new um, and yet there was this like there was just this energy and there was this love. I remember one of the girls um, from this from the community, the, the um, sitting on you know or playing with one of the the high school boys that had come on this trip, and um, she was from the the community of the mosque, and he was from the church, and they were playing together, and their faces were alive. Yeah. It was wonderful. 
and I think that's what we're going for, you know, is, is connection and, and um, providing opportunities to, um, to learn and to grow and to, and to look beyond what we know. Um, and uh, so I think that's part of what it is, um, to, as I see the church's role in relating to children and, and to youth. And, um, yeah, those are, yeah. So we only have a couple of more minutes. I actually was going to uh, delve into a, an area, but I, so the, the question would be the issue of religion and violence in our world. And I just started listening to a course on uh, on my phone uh, on religion and violence and uh, looking at the history of it and uh, even the comment that even though we perceive uh, the public perception is that religion, particularly among secularists and anti-religionists, that religion is a great source of violence in our world because of some of the issues we've been talking about, truth and things like that. Okay. And so um, it, it would be interesting to have that conversation and to open up a public dialogue so that people could understand the nature of religious teachings because we're, you've been talking about the heart and love and caring and all the things that we need to make our, our world better about connecting the youth about having a church, as it is on your website, that is open to these diverse opinions and all of that. So maybe someday we can get ourselves to that point where we can have a dialogue uh, publicly in our community about some of these issues to try to dispel some of the notions that are out there. Do you have any thoughts on that one? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, well, um, let me know. Let's let's do it. I'm, I'm ready. Um, I, I think... Um, I think it's it'd be a great conversation to have, and um, I, I think that that's uh, and and my understanding of Jesus too is that um, you know Jesus was nonviolent. I think um, and passive. Um, and uh, Doug, Douglas John Hall talks about uh, you know triumphalism. You know, as kind of the count as Jesus was countered to, to this notion of um, that which conquers by force. So um love to do that with you. Well, thank you very much, Reverend Patrick Torbett from Elon Lutheran Church here in Petaluma. It's been an honor to have you here today and to share these ideas. Our next guest will be Deb Dalton, who is the Executive Director of Mentor Me here in Petaluma. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted, KPCA LP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM.
Welcome back to Talking with Rabbi Ted. This is KPCA LP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM. And this is Rabbi Ted Feldman for segment two of this week's program. I want to welcome to the studio Deb Dalton, who is the executive director of Mentor Me Petaluma, one of uh, the greatest nonprofits we have here <laughs> in our community. Welcome, Deb. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. And uh, as I've been talking to different peoples in this studio, wanting our community to learn that there are many different types of heroes in our world. And while many people focus on sports, entertainment, and other ways of identifying heroes, I believe that the everyday heroes of our world really make the difference, and you are one of those people who makes that difference. So it's an honor to have you here in discussion today. And um, so before we talk a little bit about Mentor Me, let's talk a little bit about Deb Dalton and find out how you got to be who you are and where you came from and a little bit about your background. Could you share a little bit of that? Sure. Now, I think you were supposed to tell me how many listeners might be out there first so I know which uh, tidbits to talk about. Well, we have at least 50 million listeners around the world. Good, perfect. So I don't want to offend any of my cousins uh, and certainly not my parents, but where I come from, you have to kill something to get your picture taken, Mm. if that gives you any idea. So rural northern California. Mm. Wow. Wow. And... Grew up in a family that taught about the kinds of passions that you have today, or was that your rebellion in your family? What was it like <laughs> for you? Actually, my family was in the resort business, so a gold mining camp called Roaring Camp in Pine Grove, California. So, <laughs> in a way, uh, we grew up in public service in, in one kind or another, and usually that meant uh, helping people. From cities who came to camp, actually not uh, panic in the camping environment, and we helped people survive their family vacations. So I think it was uh, second nature to me to just dive in and do anything from uh, fixing the boat to playing with somebody's kids to going on a hike with somebody or helping them get out of the canyon intact. Well, I recognize in knowing you over these past number of years that you have a great sense of passion for making a Mm -hmm. difference in all the ways that we'll talk about that you do for your agency and other things you've done in life. Was there some event or some influence in your life that led you there, or did it just pop into your head one day? Well, it's a funny thing. I never intended uh, to be in service. Uh, Making a difference in the world was um, something that never came fully into my consciousness uh, until college, and I think that that's probably where many people start thinking about, you know, what's my contribution uh, to this world. I always felt like I was best in the role of support staff uh, and in a caregiving role. Uh, I never intended to work with young people um, outside of babysitting at that point. Uh, I intended to be an English professor, and I intended to be very serious and do literary critical theory and write write books and uh, be a solitary person. 
when when I later in life had children and was a stay-home mom and uh, realized that I desperately needed to be out in the world and speaking with other adults. I felt like my brain was falling out on the floor every day. Uh, I went out and got my first volunteer gig at the Women's uh, Domestic Violence Hotline. You had a little bit of trouble there? This actually is the only job I've ever been fired from, this volunteer gig. Uh, I I was really horrible. I mean, I went through the training like a pro, like a real student of, of life. Uh, you know, I took notes. I highlighted. I went to extra workshops. I read things. My third shift, um, my boss came in and said, uh, we, you know, we've got to talk. In essence, you were terrible. You know, I cried. I went to get the women. I rescued them. I had them in the car in the middle of the night. I brought them home. I bought them things. Uh, I, <laughs> I, uh, I felt uh, all the passion of the work times a thousand, but I could not uh, separate can separate the emotional aspect of it. Uh, the helping was um, was actually not helping. So that genius uh, boss of mine said, you know, but I want you to raise uh, about $75,000 and go out in the community and talk about what we do, raise the money, redo the entire women's safe house, room by room, project manage it, throw a party. I mean, I just, I really want you to do that. And my coworkers were looking at me like, oh, my God, this is terrible, you know. And I just said, okay, fine. Uh, And as it turns out, I was really good at it. Mm. And you're still doing the same kinds of things? Yes. (laughs) You're still doing the same kinds of things. How long have you been at Mentor Me? So this is my 12th year at Mentor Me. I just am finishing my sixth year as executive director. Wow. How did you get into Mentor Me, and what were you doing in the early days when you were there? Uh, Ironically, uh, I found myself years later uh, new to Petaluma, wandering around. My kids were 18 months and three years old, and I uh, I didn't know a single person in town. I saw a billboard for Mentor Me Petaluma. Now we're just called Mentor Me uh, because we're growing very quickly. Uh, But I I saw the sign, I saw the word mentoring, I'd always had a fantasy about doing Big Brothers Big Sisters, and so I became a volunteer mentor, uh, I think that same day. And, which is basically the way, the program that's the essence of Mentor Me, is that correct? The the tutoring and the taking care of the children and all that. Yes, yes. Uh, Mentoring, the core principle, is really through... Uh, through play, enrichment activities, art, conversation, just spending time together an hour a week. That's really the basis of how we build relationships uh, with young people in particular and sort of get to the heart of what's going on with them. You know, in those days, uh, I went for a training and uh, sat with the uh, one of the founders and first executive director, Val Richmond, and uh, she and the site coordinator, the person who manages the mentorships on the school campus, um, as I was talking, they kept looking at each other, and it was it was sort of uncomfortable in a way. It was like they had this, this secret language going on. And what I realized later was they were listening to what I was saying, and they knew the kids that were on the wait list at Valley Vista School. And uh, I had said, 
that I had been primarily raised in junior high by my dad, and it was hard coming of age. And I, I had had an adult female who was really present and consistent in my life. I think I would have made some better choices for myself um, during those adolescent years. And they were looking at me at each other because um, earlier that day, an 11-year-old young lady walked in the school office and said, um, you know, my dad's awesome, um, but I don't see my mom, and it really sucks being a teenage girl. Uh, right now, I could really use, like, a woman to talk about girl stuff with. Uh, and so the the matching process, how we match a random adult in the community um, with a child, is really part magic and part science. Uh, it really is. It's a, certainly a, a magical process, and it's an odd thing because first we say to kids, you know, we're going to teach you about stranger danger, right? And then shortly thereafter, we say, okay, welcome to the mentoring program. We're going to match you with a total stranger, right? Mm -hmm. So it's an odd thing. But that stranger comes endorsed and checked out and <laughs> uh, making sure that the connection would be good. Oh, yes, absolutely. Right. So there's an application that you can find uh, on our website, or please do come see us at the Kavanaugh Building, 4268th Street, the Old Boys and Girls Club. Uh, we uh, have you fill out an application. You'll need three references. We go through a two-hour training. We do an extensive background uh, check all the way to the FBI. It's for real. And um, we spend time with you, getting to know you. Uh, you'll have long conversations with us about what age group you're interested in, uh, what you, how you see yourself working with a child in this world. And then we, we, it's like couples counseling. We match and we manage and we follow you uh, through the whole time with that young person. So how old are the children? So the children are, age, are nominated, can be nominated from ages 5 to really 18. We do, um, we do have still 74 kids on the wait list as we end this school year. Now, fortunately, we are doing group mentoring on our now. Um, we have 24 partner schools in four different school districts. Um, but on our elementary school campuses and one high school and one junior high, we're doing group mentoring with our waitlisted kids. So for folks who are not um, entirely sure about the one-on-one -on -one relationship, not sure if you have the time weekly, please do join us uh, for group mentoring once or twice a month um, during the school year. So we have group options. So what happens in this mentoring? Is it uh, tutoring for things in mm -hmm. school? Is it conversations about family life and what they're doing? Is it taking a young child out for ice cream? What, what kinds of things are they doing? Well, it could be all of those things. We really encourage mentors to let the child lead the way. Uh, and we stress that it's really through playful activities and, and a warm exchange. A mentor's job really is to be good uh, listeners, uh, watch body language, listen to not only what they're saying, but their expressions and how they're saying it. Um, really to see these kids in a way that they've maybe not been truly seen. Mm. Are the mentors generally um, older adults, or are they, what's the age range? Mm. I remember when I was uh, working in Jewish Family and Children's Services, we had a grandparenting program where we matched up children with 
people of grandparenting age, right. if, particularly if their grandparents, if the children's grandparents lived somewhere else far away, had no connection to the community. So what's, what's that demographic like for you? Right. Well, it's changed over time. We are a school-based program, and what that means is that um, all mentorships start on a school campus uh, during the school hours or right after school. So it prohibits people with typical working hours, um, in some cases, from starting mentoring. But we've loosened up on that quite a bit. And now that we have the Kavanaugh Building and uh, we're, um, we've partnered with the Salvation Army on the east side of town to uh, create another community mentor center for young people. Uh, so we'll have some more options for, for mentors to meet um, after school hours and, and outside of traditional work hours. You know, his, we have mentors. You have to be 18 to be a mentor. You know, people worry all the time about things. First of all, they worry that, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not equipped. What do I have to offer to work with kids? You know, not, I don't know if, if I have a license or anything or if I have anything to share. Uh, really, the kids on our wait list are from all walks of life. They have all kinds of different different challenges, uh, different personality types. They're, the kids on, that we work with um, tend to be sort of off the grid. They're not they're not fitting into all those perfect boxes and certainly not uh, fitting in so well at the public schools. So all you need is whatever life experience that you come with and the willingness to, to be vulnerable um, and share your life and share yourself uh, with a young person. And what's the diversity like among the, both the mentees and the mentors? Mm -hmm. Is this a diverse community? Well, I think we're going to say something really also pretty true about Petaluma. So our 48% of the young people on our, wait, on our wait list and in our program in general are, are Latino. Mm -hmm. um, there are 7% other, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, um, primarily uh, our mentors are... Caucasian, upper middle class Caucasian folks over the age of 50. Um, that Those are our long-term bulk of our mentor demographic. And we've been really focusing a lot on mentor outreach and recruitment of a more diverse uh, population uh, of people in terms of eth ethnicity and socioeconomic differences. Um, we have a lot of different resources now. So mentors no longer have to spend their own money out in the world once you go off campus and are able to take your young person out to do all kinds of activities you you don't have to spend your own money on things we have gift cards uh, to give you for restaurants and activities and theater tickets and sporting events and um, we really have a lot of very generous donors willing to give uh, experiences to these young people and it just means that we can recruit a wider pool of mentors so I know that uh, you're housed at the Kavanaugh Center now, and that's uh, past three, it's three years already? I lost track of time. Yes, August yeah. 2014, we okay, got so the keys. So it's almost mm -hmm. four years. It is. So tell us a little bit about how that happened. Yeah, so we, uh, <laughs> we were on 35 Maria Drive, and most people will know that that set of office buildings is uh, long torn down. Um, when I started, in fact, my first month, I realized that uh, we were going to have to move right away. So I quickly had to uh, learn my job, um, figure out the staffing and all, and all the ways in which we were going to raise that operating budget, um, which has uh, tripled since then, <laughs> those days. 
Um, but we also had to find space. So we uh, rented a small, you know, 300 square feet on Keller Street. Four of us were leapfrogging each other on two desks. And uh, I kept driving by the Kavanaugh building. Um, I really had a fantasy that if we had a recreation center, uh, a real facility, uh, that we could start doing some more intensive programming. Um, that's really where we needed to be. I realized that it was a city-owned building. Uh, I realized that um, the city was holding senior programs there and open gyms and that they were having to staff it um, and that it was a challenge. The building is a gorgeous building built in 1958 by, by Petalumans, names that many people will recognize. Um, it's a gorgeous building, and it needed some TLC. So um, I was friends with the people at uh, the Petaluma Animal Services and, and knew that they did a professional services agreement with the city in order to deliver a much-needed service in exchange for rent. And it just seemed like that would make sense for us. Uh, we'd be happy to take over the contracts for the senior center because to us, all of those uh, active seniors playing table tennis. If you're over uh, at the Kavanaugh building, just beware these, quote, seniors uh, have knee pads, they're diving. It is a very cutthroat uh, ping pong uh, thing that goes on over there. Um, so these are, you know, this is our sweet spot. We're going to recruit those folks and, and get them into the cause. Um, so we did. It took 18 months, and I don't think that there was a dry eye in the house when the green lights from the city council um, all went on. Uh, it has become our headquarters and our home. It really was intended to be uh, a building um, for public use, and it truly is. Uh, we do rent the spaces um, for some earned income for us and to help us handle the overhead of the building. Um, but the building itself is a macro model of what our mentor centers on our school campuses um, look like. So there should be some art uh, in there, there should be school supplies, there should be traditional games and play, there should be food, there should be um, an admin space for our staff to be available. And as you go throughout the rooms in the Kavanaugh, you can see exactly what we do. Uh, each room represents um, a, a way to reach a vulnerable child. So the children who come in, the students, Many of them have severe challenges. It's not just, oh, I want a friend to talk to an older person and be able to have a conversation. Uh, many of their home environments are difficult. Uh, their social skills are challenging. And you have specific programs that you've been working with different agencies to try to address uh, the restorative justice program. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about those. Sure, sure. So. We have about 400 uh, young people in active one-on-one -on -one mentorships. Now, keep in mind, Mentor Me started in 2000 We at McNear School. So we matched so many of our young people early on in elementary school. We take nominations at junior high and high school as well, but primarily the bulk of our nominations do still happen in elementary school, as you might imagine. You want to identify these vulnerable kids early and stay with them longer. What we realized after all these years and, and kids, even though we ask that you make a two-year commitment as a mentor, 60% of our mentors go well beyond two years, and most of them over five. Um, my oldest mentee, we're in our 12th year of mentoring. Um, 
But what we started to see is that 10% of our mentees, despite the preventative medicine of mentoring, were going sideways on us anyway. They were becoming juvenile offenders. Um, they were imminently at risk for dropping out of school. Uh, they were having mental health issues. Uh, episodes and issues with substance abuse. So we formed an advocacy team and we recruited um, some professional high skill set volunteers to join us. So Officer uh, Zeus Rivera, and we do rope his partner in, Officer Ryan Debaki too. Um, he sits on our advocacy team and uh, Zeus is primarily a liaison for us with the police department to navigate um, what can be a very complex world when kids are, are arrested or cited and enter the juvenile justice system. So um, we, we have a retired probation counselor, we have a retired superior court judge, we have counselors, case managers. Um, so in this way, we can follow kids who get themselves in uh, dangerous and, and trouble, uh, troublesome situations. We can weekly case manage them. You know, we don't, we don't want to get too far out of our lane doing counseling and intensive um, interventions that we're not qualified to do. And that's why we work very, very closely with Petaluma People Services, Sunny Hill Services, um, the Health Center. Uh, we're up at Sonoma County um, Probation. We recently um, in addition to starting a contract with the Petaluma Police Department, we're also in contract with the Probation Department to work with uh, juvenile offenders. You know, people are talking a lot about restorative justice. Everybody wants to do a version of restorative justice, and we certainly um, have been uh, intrigued and inspired by the process. What we created is a little bit different. It's through a restorative lens, certainly. And the primary principles of restorative justice absolutely um, happen. But for us, we call it a youth diversion and restorative mentoring program. So by way of um, having traditional restorative circles, the point of the circle is to come together with peers, community members, um, sometimes the person who was harmed uh, from the incident, but not always. But it's a circle to determine how did this young person get here and what is needed to help them feel that they are redeemed to teach them that the primary uh, part of, of making things right in the world is to look somebody in the eye and say, I understand what I did was hurtful and harmful, and I'm interested in making that right. It's hard for everyone to do that. Um, it's a constant uh, practice to be present, to own, uh, own up to our actions, to be vulnerable and present uh, with people of, of any age. Um, so we really use those um, those principles and, and the opportunity to sit down together um, and teach them teach them how to be like that in the world. So, in general, over the years, and mm -hmm. have you had any resistance in the community to the kinds of work that you're doing? Uh, any political resistance, social resistance in the community? Has it been or totally supportive? What, what's it been like <laughs> for you? Well, I don't want to sound like Polly and Anna or everything in life is all sunshine and roses, but, um, you know, what we do is is really a lovely thing. Right. And, it is a and good it's, thing. It's, it's, right, right. And um, 
you know, running into um, uh, things where we have political landmines or stepping on people's toes is is really pretty easy for us to remedy. I mean, restorative justice is a perfect example. So we always try to do our homework. You know, restorative services is an, is an amazing, uh, you know, 40-year-old program in San, based in Santa Rosa, but they really do that, do restorative justice beautifully, and they hold contracts. So, you know, we, um, we reach out. We get trained by the other groups who are doing restorative justice. We really find ourselves always interested um, in being mentored uh, ourselves professionally. And when we feel like we're out of our depth, we, we pass it on and we get partners. Um, the community has been incredibly um, supportive over the years. And um, I think one thing that people will say about Mentor Me is that we play well with others. <laughs> and you depend also on a lot of volunteers and a board of directors and fundraising in the community. Yeah. We can't do fundraising right here, but mm-hmm. we do. all those are the component parts. So you're operating yeah. a complex organization at this point. It's true. And, you know, really because we have service contracts with the police department and with probation, uh, our schools now we are going into every school in a fee-for-service model. And that really means that we are doing a comprehensive social service and we have clients. Um, It makes it more difficult for us to do uh, traditional um, fundraising uh, projects. So so our funding sources are diversified and we're moving toward primarily earned income these days through building rental um, and a direct mail. Good, good, good. So you've made quite an impact uh, in this community. I know that. Thank uh, you. I know you're very engaged in not only in the board of directors and running your organization, but more how much you care about the children that are being served through Mentor Me and through all of your programs and that that's your passion. Any visions for the future on your mind in the last uh, minute or so of our conversation? Um, yes, absolutely. Uh, Really, I would like us to recruit 100 new mentors a year. I would like people from all walks of life, ages 18 and up, to really realize that they have something valuable to offer another person. Um, I really think that everyone should have a mentor, uh, and everyone should mentor someone else. Well, thank you, and uh, please, community, respond and let Mentor Me know that you might be interested in helping. Thank Thank you, you, Deb Dalton, Executive Director of Mentor Me, for being here with us today on Talking with Rabbi Ted. We have today explored a little bit of the faith community. We have explored uh, a nonprofit in our community that does great service for us. The heroes of Petaluma are abounding, and we are very, very blessed to be part of this community. I am the rabbi of the Israel Jewish Center, the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council, and it's my honor to be here with you today. You are listening to KPCALP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM. Thank you.
was hurtful and harmful, and I'm interested in making that right. It's hard for everyone to do that. It's a constant uh, practice to be present, to own, uh, own up to our actions, to be vulnerable and present uh, with people of, of any age. Um, so we really use those, um, those principles and, and the opportunity to sit down together um, and teach them teach them how to be like that in the Were world. Tired of the so in general, over the years, the and mm -hmm. have you had I'm any sure resistance in the community to the kinds of work that you're doing? We host local uh, any political like resistance, social resistance in the community? Has it been in on totally supportive? What's the tip for you? Well, I don't want to sound like Polly and Anna or everything in life is all sunshine and roses, but, um, you know, what we do is, is really a lovely thing. Right, and, it is a and it's, it's Right, right. And, um, you know, running into um, um, things where we have political landmines or stepping on people's toes is is really pretty easy for us to remedy. I mean, restorative justice is a perfect example. So we always try to do our homework. You know, restorative services is an, is an amazing, no uh, you know, 40-year-old program in San, based in Santa Rosa, but they really do that, do restorative justice beautifully, and they hold contracts. So, you know, we, um, we reach out. We get trained by the other groups who are doing restorative justice. We really find ourselves always interested um, in being mentored ourselves professionally. And when we feel like we're out of our depth, we, we pass it on and we get partners. Um, the community is um, supportive over the years. I think one thing that I will say about mentoring is that we school and a fee-for-service model, and that really means that we are doing a comprehensive Please, community, respond and let mentor me know that you might be interested in helping. 
commitment and thank, thank you, Deb Dalton, how Executive they do Director that is and Mentor Me, for being here with us today on talking with Rabbi Ted. We have today explored a little bit of the faith community. We have explored nonprofit in our community that does great service for us. The heroes of Paloma are abounding, and we are very, very blessed to be part of this community. I am the rabbi of the Jewish Center. Of the and also some others that have been, you know, used to and 